Job chapter 38, I'm going to read all the way through chapter 40, verse 5. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. And said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place? That it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. That you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, and the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? 
Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. Since mankind fell into sin, man has been marked by a hopeless flaw, arrogance. In our world, arrogance is often confused with confidence, and it is also celebrated. 
One way it is expressed is in the words, whatever you can do, I can do better. As Job continued to suffer, his sin was exposed and what marked his attitude was arrogance. His arrogance peaked in his final speech in chapters 29 through 31, where he challenged God and his ways. He was indirectly implying that if he was to govern the world, he could do it better. Now, it is true that Job's longing has been to come before God and present his case. He wanted to plead his innocence before his three accusers. But in pleading his innocence, he also wanted God to plead guilty. He accused God of wrong. He wanted to come before God to clear his own name, but he refused to clear God's name. And this challenge would indeed reach heaven. God sent Elihu the prophet to speak God's word to Job and his friends, preparing the way for the Lord. Then there was silence. There was no response from either side. And then Job would get what he wanted. Job said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him back in chapter 23. But Elihu would respond, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He dwells in unapproachable light. Or as the psalmist says, He is surrounded by darkness. No one has ever seen or can see him. This is true. Job couldn't find God. We can't find God by searching for him. But instead, as his pattern, God would find Job as God found us. If you remember back in chapter 37, verse 22, Elihu said, out of the north comes God's golden splendor. Uh, The word for north is from the word zaphon, and it can also be translated as darkness. So out of the darkness comes golden splendor. Out of the darkness comes light, and God reveals himself to Job, and this is how he reveals himself to us. And God would speak directly to Job out of the whirlwind. Now, this is the pattern that we find throughout Scripture. But the most memorable is found in Exodus chapter 19, when Israel was at Mount Sinai, and a thick cloud with thunder and lightning rested on the mountain, covering it with smoke. And the Lord spoke out of this cloud directly to Moses. So this is not only a fearful encounter for Job, but it is also an encounter of promise and confirmation that Job is a servant and a child of God. But notice this happens before and outside the nation of Israel, outside of the promised land. Now this is why we consider Job a patriarch along with Noah and Abraham. And also we can relate to him as we live in a world of suffering away from our promised land. See, we normally think of Job as this one-off book of the Bible, 
but he is actually a forefather of the faith, even though his lineage is not clear, and he was a Gentile. But he was a Gentile in covenant with God. Uh, This is why the author of Job would use the covenant name of God in verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, the I am that I am. Because the Lord is Job's redeemer. And his suffering would foreshadow the new covenant sufferings of Christ. But for now, this covenant redeemer, the creator of all things, has come to speak to Job in response to his arrogance. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. So we should all listen because the Lord speaks to us through these words to humble us as well as Job. He starts off much like when Adam and Eve fell into sin and they hid themselves. The Lord asked them, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where they were. But it was to invoke a response. It was to call them to respond. So he asks, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? If there's any question whether or not Elihu was God's prophet, well, here it is. The Lord basically repeats Elihu's accusation about Job and how he was full of empty talk and multiplied words without knowledge. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. But then he calls Job to dress for action like a man, that is, a strong man. To gird up his loins, fasten his belt like a wrestler. You think you're strong? You think you're Hulk Hogan or Mike Tyson? Prepare to wrestle with God. You think you can box with me? Let's go a few rounds here. And the way we're going to do it is through a trial. This is what Job wanted. He wanted to stay in trial. But instead of answering all of the questions that Job asked him, The Lord trades places with Job and says, I'll be the attorney, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And you can give me some answers, if you can. To sum it all up, he basically asks two questions. Who is the creator of all things? And who are you, O man? First, The Lord asks Job, who is the creator from Genesis 1? This is the pattern of this entire speech. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. Who created the earth? Was it you, Job? Then the Lord describes himself as the architect or builder of the world from the foundation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did you measure it? Did you lay the first cornerstone? See, this world is well-ordered and built in a way that has purpose and meaning. The purpose or end goal of creation is the glory of God. Even creation sings of the goodness of what God has done whenever daylight first appears. Remember when God created all things, he said it was good. And here it says, the angels, the, the sons of God, shouted for joy. And guess who was not there to witness this? Neither Job, nor you and I. Job began his complaint by cursing the day of his birth. 
but that is as far back as it goes for Job. Job has a beginning, just like all of us. Uh, Go back a few thousand years more, and you'll learn creation has a beginning. While there is no beginning for God, He is eternal, He is infinite, He has no limits, but Job has limits. And all of God's creation has limits. Job wasn't there when God laid the foundation of the earth. And he wasn't there when he bound up the sea. He shuts its doors so it wouldn't burst. He set limits to the oceans and rivers so that they wouldn't overflow and flood the earth. He said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. In verse 16, he asks Job, have you traveled to the depths of the sea? Uh, Humans can only go so deep in the ocean before we implode. But who knows those depths other than God? What about the earth's cycle of daylight as the earth spins on its axis? He asks Job, have you commanded the morning? Did you tell the sun when to rise or when to set? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? The imagery here is of when uh, the sun first appears in the morning and it grabs darkness like a tablecloth and shakes the wicked out of the earth. We're beginning to see what God is saying here. In my own culture at Home, growing up, a lot of the music and poetry had double meanings. I believe that is what the Lord is doing here. He is not just speaking about creating the earth, its cycles, and how Job wasn't there. Uh, He mentioned the sea, clouds of darkness, then morning or dawn. Uh, The sea is known throughout scripture to be symbolic of chaos and the home of demons, And Sheol, or the gates of death, is often described as residing beyond the deepest parts of the sea. So he is not just talking about creation and its limits, but he is also talking about good and evil, light and darkness. The gates of deep darkness, the gates of death, or Sheol. Have these been revealed to you, Job? Do you know the mysteries of life and death, good and evil? Do you know about the underworld and where the dead go? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this, Job. What you should get from all of this is that Job is limited. We are limited. Like all of us, Job is limited in his knowledge of God and his ways. But God is saying to Job and to all of us, know this, that all of creation, including good and evil, though they are so vast and incomprehensible, they have their limits. They have their limits. In fact, in Revelation 21, it says that when the new heaven and the new earth appear, the first earth will pass away and the sea will be no more. So we are called... To trust in an infinite and eternal God. The creator of all. And that he has created all these things. And all these things are under his control. Including evil in our lives. When the sun rises. The light of the wicked. Which is really darkness. Is withheld from them. And their uplifted arm. That is their strength. Is broken by God. 
So although this is a rebuke to Job, correcting his faulty ideas of what is going on in his life and what God is supposedly doing to him, it should be an encouragement to know that God has all of life's details under his control. And just like light and darkness serve their place in creation, good and evil serve their place and serve their roles in our own lives. He asks Job, do you know their place in the world? Can you direct the light and the darkness to where they must go? Can you lead them home? We know the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. Job has known this and has been a witness to this reality since he was born. But are we the ones who have the power to direct the sun when to rise and when to set? So how can anyone tell God what he should do with good and evil in our lives? And this has great implications for us, doesn't it? God knows and controls the mysteries of creation when the sun rises and sets. And so we shouldn't fear when evil and suffering comes our way or when unbelief seems to be taking over the world. We shouldn't question God's goodness when wickedness seems to prevail all around us for now. Evil and suffering will have limits. And these are all under his guidance and control. I think sometimes we act as if God has stepped off his throne and allowed Satan to sit on it for a little while. As if God gives Satan some control when things seem to be crumbling all around us. But that's blasphemous. Instead, God is always on the throne And even with evil in the world that's all around us, his plans and purposes for his people are all good. So can we join with the angels and rejoice in singing over this truth? Secondly, the Lord asks Job, who created the heavens? In verses 22 through 30, he focuses on the water. Now, water is a mystery in itself, but think of the different forms of water that fall from the sky and how he uses weather patterns to govern man's life on earth. Uh, all of you farmers out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some weather patterns are for destruction and others for good. Uh, think of snow and hail, which the Lord says he reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. The Lord used these elements to bring his wrath on the earth. Uh, The prime example in scripture is found in the seventh plague that came upon Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. Uh, What about lightning that often comes with a hailstorm? Have you ever seen a lightning bolt in a cloud? Can you trace where lightning begins and where it ends? I don't know about you, but I can't. Do we know exactly where the east wind that carries that storm is scattered upon the earth? Think of thunderstorms and rain and how the Lord guides rain through channels and could bring rain to a place where no man is, like a desert. And out of the ground, grass will grow. God uses water to bring destruction and he uses water to bring forth life. He asks Job, has the rain a father? Now that's another way of asking, can you control the weather, Job? 
You think you could govern better than me? But even rain, snow, and hail serve their purposes, which you are ignorant of. Did you create the rain? From whose womb did the ice come from? And who gives birth to the frost? Am I not the father of all creation? Can you control the process of water turning to freezing rain? Some have tried to gain complete knowledge of the weather, but as we know, the profession uh, that you can be wrong eight out of ten times and still keep your job is the weatherman. No fault to him, because the weather changes so often. In verses 34 through 38, he is basically asking Job, can you command the clouds to flood the earth the way God did in the time of Noah? Can you command lightning and tell it where it must go or have lightning come before you and say, here we are, we're here to serve you? No. All of nature will be disobedient to you. God has given us wisdom and understanding in the inward parts of our minds, but even with this, we can't even number the clouds, never mind the stars. Only God has ultimate wisdom and authority to tilt the water skins. These are the clouds of heaven to allow it to rain on the dust of the earth until it turns to mud. Unlike Job and unlike us, God has infinite knowledge and wisdom. He knows what is best for his creation and no human being has the power nor the authority to control the weather. Never mind tell God when and how he should bless his people and relieve their suffering in this world. Not only does he control the weather on earth, but also look past the clouds and into the sky. He says, look to the constellations. Can you bind the chains of Pallades or loose the cords of Orion's belt? He mentions other constellations like the Maseroth and the bear with its children. Can you lead them, Job? Now, astrology and horoscopes are condemned in the scripture. Uh, we shouldn't look to the zodiac to try to figure out God's will for our lives. The reason being is because God has given us the scriptures for that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God governs the stars and how they are aligned. And how they are aligned ought to draw our minds to his sovereignty and providence. Think of how the Magi found Jesus. It was through looking up at the heavens and the stars. It was looking at the sky. Do we understand these things? Do we have control over the stars? Do we decide where they are to be placed and for what reason? No. But all of creation on earth and in heaven ought to draw our minds to a creator who is indeed sovereign over all things, even though we do not see it yet. And yes... He even has control over the wild things that seem to be out of control. So thirdly, the Lord asks Job, who created the animal kingdom? And he is not speaking about domestic pets or farm animals here. He speaks of wild animals that, though they are wild, they are wild for God's purposes. He describes how life and death work in every animal's life he has placed on this earth. Now, this is what we call the food chain. God has control over the predators and their prey. Can you feed the lions? Can you feed the ravens their prey? Can you hunt for them? But here it says the baby ravens cry out to God for help. 
God provides their food, not Job. He provides the prey. God has control over the timing of their existence. Uh, One of Job's complaints was that God has not governed time very well. But look at how he cares for his newborn creatures. So he asks, what about mountain goats giving birth? Do you know all the details of when, how, and why? Do you know how their young grow strong after being born so weak? Then they go off on their own, never to return home again. God has control over wild animals to give them freedom. What about the wild donkey? Who gives him freedom in the wild? Who finds the place where he is to live? He lives in the salt land, which is probably the region of the Dead Sea, where he struggles to find food. But God still provides for the wild donkey. And it is all for a reason and a purpose that is only known to God. What about the wild ox? Can you tame it? The ox's horns are about six feet across. They are massive and dangerous creatures. Job, can you bind a wild ox with ropes? You think he's going to be loyal to you? As many of you know, it's hard enough to tame domestic animals and domestic pets, never mind a wild ox. God has control over even foolish animals. What about the ostrich? Ostriches are stupid animals. They have wings that they flap with pride, yet they can't fly. They stick their heads in the sand to warm up their eggs. And when they are on top of the ground, the mothers are known to leave their eggs to warm up in the sun, not realizing that some other animal, like an elephant, could come around and stomp on. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. She lives without care and without fear, but the truth is, It is God that made her stupid. God made her forget wisdom with no share in understanding. It's rather funny, isn't it? But but at the same time, boy, ostriches are fast. They'll leave a horse and its rider in the dust and look back and laugh. See, all of God's creatures serve a purpose, even dumb animals. God has control over fearful animals like majestic horses, whether they are wild or tamed. Think of how mighty they are. They've always been a symbol of strength and majesty in all cultures. The horse's mane symbolizes thunder or power. Uh, Think of the four horsemen of Revelation. You ever ask, why are they riding on horses? Because they are majestic and terrifying animals. You ever jump when you hear a horse snort? Then it stomps its foot and wags its head? In my opinion, that is the time that you just move away. Right? It reminds me of the movie called War Horse and how this horse would run directly into the crossfire of World War I toward the enemies without fear. He doesn't turn back. At the sound of the trumpet, he is off into battle. Nothing can stop him. Who gave this animal his might and strength? Who gave this animal its bravery? Was it man? Was it Job? Did Job give it a pep talk? No. Then he goes back to the predator and prey. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south for the winter? 
The fastest living animal on the planet is the peregrine falcon, which is a small hawk. When it swoops down to catch its prey, it can hit speeds of up to 250 miles per hour. The blink of an eye. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? The eagle has also been a symbol of human empires throughout the centuries for its majestic nature. You ever see an eagle's nest? If you're into bird watching, there are some right along the St. Lawrence River there in Ogdensburg. You'll notice how high they are so that no predator can reach. Notice how they make their nests out of material that makes them pretty much invincible. From there, he spies out his prey from afar so he can swoop down and catch it. Uh, We've seen the nest of a golden eagle recently. And guess what? That's the second fastest animal on the planet with speeds of up to 200 miles per hour when it dives. And it is also that they can feed their chicks. His young ones suck up blood. The Lord gives graphic detail to show how the food chain works and serves a purpose. The demise of one, the prey, whether it's a rabbit or a mouse, means life for another, the predator, the eagle. Now, in a weird way, this kind of reminds you of the cross of Christ. The demise of one meant life for others, and it was all part of God's plan and foreknowledge. So we must confess, in light of this, our limitations here and proclaim God's unlimited knowledge, wisdom, and power. We are prone to rely on our own knowledge to quote-unquote fix things when we are truly powerless. Only the Lord has the power to overcome all suffering, evil, even the fiercest parts of his creation, even the fiercest animals. He subdues. So this sets the stage for the next question. So lastly, the Lord asks, who are you, O man? Job thought he could give some tips to God on how to govern the world. But what the Lord has been saying is that he doesn't make mistakes. The Lord does not make mistakes. Job's suffering wasn't for nothing. God doesn't make mistakes in your own life. But he asks, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Can you answer yes to any of these questions? So what was Job's response? Never mind being in the presence of God, but what did Paul say about man's response to the standard of God's law, which is a reflection of holiness and the righteousness of God? He says the law is revealed so that every mouth may be stopped. Why? Because of sin. So what should be the response of a creature? Never mind a sinner, but a creature in the presence of his creator who has created a world he can never fully understand. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account or better Better translation would be, I am unworthy. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. 
in the presence of God, all mouths should be and will be stopped. There is no charge that anyone can bring against God. Now, there was a man who could have answered all of these questions that God asked Job in the affirmative. Jesus was all-knowing and everywhere present, while at the same time, he was fully man, limited to a body. John says that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When Jesus called Nathanael to be his disciple, uh, Jesus saw him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What was Nathanael's response? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Speaking to the Jews, uh, Jesus told them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1. He was before me. You could add any name there. Before Adam and Eve, Jesus was. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify him with the glory they shared before the foundation of the world, before the world existed, and that he may bring his disciples into glory. In fact, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, which means Christ, before he was in the flesh, the Son of God was there. And all this confirms what John opens his gospel with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then finally, in a point in time, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was there, and through him God created all things. Right now, as both God and man, he sustains the world by the word of his power. And even in regard to death, Jesus says to us from Revelation, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, speaking of his deity. I died, speaking of his humanity. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He said, fear not, because all of life and death, all of creation, are under his control. In fact, his mission was to destroy death in the works of Satan. This is so that the Christian should approach God, not with arrogance, but with confidence. Because this is not just a rebuke, but an encouragement for us that we can trust in the Lord with all of our unanswered questions in life. Notice how the Lord did not answer Job's question 
as to why he suffered. He didn't even reveal to Job what happened in the heavenly courts when Satan came before his throne and how it was Satan who attacked him. He doesn't reveal that. Job didn't need to know all that information. He didn't need to know all those details. We don't need to know all the details behind what is going on with us. What he wants from us is trust. Because this Lord sustains all things, even this world that is so full of darkness and evil, where the righteous do suffer, he still reigns supreme over all of his creation. This is why the many versions of the prosperity gospel upsets me so much. Because it's trying to tell us that when things are bad, man, the church is being cursed, we're being judged. That doesn't mean we're being judged. He wants us not to rely on our own wisdom and power, but trust in this infinite, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, everywhere present, almighty, incomprehensible, all-knowing, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful, most gracious, long-suffering, all-good, and all-truthful God. Amen.